I'm Teen Methuselah, and you know me from Twitter, probably. Maybe you don't. Maybe you just stumbled onto this by accident. Doesn't really make a difference to me. Um, as you can probably see from the title of the episode, this is about the Ari Aster folk horror film, Midsommar. Maybe it's Midsummer. I don't really care. I'm calling it Midsommar. Um, I would like to um, explain why I think Midsommar is an existential horror film. A lot of people in the world of film criticism have interpreted it as a breakup horror film. And I get that. Ari Aster himself has even said that he sees the film as a breakup opera. But I don't really think that's what's going on with the movie. Um, I mean, I, I don't disagree with Aster at all. But thankfully, he also kind of provides a space for people to interpret the film as they wish, which is awesome. That's a, an indication that he's a really great artist is that he he believes that his own perspectives of his creations are not, you know, the be all end all of his creations. And that's that's awesome. Um, I brushed up against his his interpretation because um, I think that the beginning and ending of Midsommar are so much more important than the stuff in between. I'm of the opinion when it comes to narratives that beginning and endings are the key. When I make stuff, I know that those are usually the things that form the most directly in my creative mind. The journey there is important, but that journey is usually born from a specific seed and it's almost always the beginning for me. And the ending is what I consider to be kind of a coda, you know, a, a reinforcement of the motif or even the moment of revealing, you know, what the story is really about. But maybe I just put too much emphasis on the recency bias, but I don't think it's an unjust approach again. It's something that you see throughout, you know, literature and, and art. Um, so with that in mind, let's sort of start with the beginning of Midsummer. Um, I, I, I think it's one of the most unsettling aspects in the film. It's dedicated to the murder-suicide of the family of the main character, Danny. Uh, like I said, it's a really unsettling scene. There's nothing explicitly gruesome about the scene other than perhaps the detail of her sister's vomit as the result of the exhaust fumes poisoning her body. Um, there's a lot of nightmarish details though. Um, there's hoses leading from the exhaust pipes of cars in the garage and the camera follows those hoses as they slither through the entire home. And then they terminate, um, two in the bedrooms of the parents and one that's just duct taped directly into the mouth of Danny's sister. And it's, it's unfathomable. You know, I, I'm, that's, the word I'm choosing to use is just trying to get across the idea that it's hard to understand. Um, film pop culture has kind of romanticized this particular method of suicide. Um, in a lot of films, characters just get into a car in a closed garage. They start the engine. Maybe there's a couple more minutes of, you know, seeing the, you know, the gas kind of you know, fill the garage or maybe the character that's killing themselves is shown and the, you know, their emotional state is shown. 
But most of the time we just end up seeing their dead body and usually a loved one discovering it so that we can you know, have the catharsis of their grief. Midsomar spares us none of that. Um, it, it informs us that Danny's sister engineered a very particular horrifying and bloodless death for herself and her parents. Um, and it even implies that, that the parents were murdered. We don't really know 100% for sure, but it, it definitely kind of gives us the impression that she killed them and that they did not choose to die. Um, Aster definitely set this scene up meticulously and revealed it not only for shock, because that's not what Aster typically does. He's not the kind of director that just uses shock for shock's value, and that's why I love what he does. He is willing to to unsettle us and put us off guard with moments that are also very important narrative and thematic beats. That's great. Um, in his films, there's almost never a moment where a character dies without that adding or elaborating on the overall, you know, motif or thrust of the film. And with the way the family in Midsommar dies, you know, just how very um, unfathomable, impossible to kind of understand, Aster kind of elicits a question of how could, people say this, how could someone do this? How could, how could she have done this? You know, this, this very specific, um, you know, um, particular determined, um, elaborate act. Why would she do this? And, you know, we don't know, you know, in, in the film and as people, we, we don't really ever know, no matter how much research and no matter how much we talk about it, we, we don't, we still don't really psychologically, um, know why some people kill themselves, um, and why they choose to do it the way they do. Uh, there's literally, you know, thousands of people, uh, that will kill themselves who never displayed any kind of symptoms of depression or any kind of mental illness. They, they just do it and no one, no one expects it. And sometimes those people, you know, they kill their loved ones when they do it. And there's never really, sometimes there's never really an explanation. Um, and it's kind of Midsommar's sort of making that statement is deeper than just saying that it's, it's, you know, Danny's sister was bipolar and Danny herself, um, even though her boyfriend Christian keeps kind of trying to rationalize her out of it is always terrified with this unbearable anxiety about her sister. Um, even though the film establishes via Christian that, you know, she's constantly, you know, frightening constantly doing these, these things that, that create more anxiety and, and how much of Danny's anxiety is, is driven by the fact that she doesn't understand why her sister behaves this way. Like if there was uh, you know, a rationale to the way her sister behaved, she could not worry about it so much, but that's not the way that sort of, you know, her, that's not the way bipolar disorder works at all. You, there's no rationale to it. There's no depression is the exact same way. There's no triggers, you know, it, it it can be triggered, but it, it often isn't. Um, how much of, and, and to an extent, like, you know, the film also questions, like, how much of Christian's frustration with Danny is the result of not being able to relate to her anxiety? Because to him, it's, she's worrying unnecessarily. You know, he, he sees that her sister's behavior is irrational and 
And to him, somebody who thinks of himself as being, you know, very rational, he doesn't understand why she is so worried irrationally. And that kind of gets down to a, this idea that, that, you know, sometimes we, we want to connect with people rationally and it doesn't work that way. In, in Midsommar, every character, most of the main characters are kind of incapable of establishing this authentic connection between each other. In particular, Danny is in this really tortured place where she can't shake the grief of her family's death. Um, but she also feels guilty for it, mainly because of Christian's attitude. And it's it's kind of something that repeats through the course of the film of, of people not being able to just accept what someone feels. Um, and her decision to go to Midsommar with Christian is equally inscrutable, at least, you know, to them. And, and in the film, it's kind of a vague thing too. You know, it, it's easy to say like, oh, you know, she's doing it to, you know, maintain her relationship with Christian. But I think it's also easy to say as well that she thinks it's going to get her away from, you know, the situation that she's in, this torture that she's dealing with, with her family's death. Um, but it's definitely, you know, I think it's very much, you know, the case that she's trying to, you know, to break this hold that her grief and despair has on her, but there's no way for her to do that. Midsommar shows us that, you know, that the whole scene, the whole film's thing with the Harga, you know, she goes there and, and they offer her drugs, which she's also kind of pressured into taking. Um, you know, there, there's kind of this idea that, you know, she was supposed to become one with nature and, and the Harga like trying to tell her, you know, like, you know, we worship nature and, and um, she doesn't find the escape that they they kind of seem to to um, to be offering her with this. You know, they, they talk about how nature is, you know, systematic. How it, it it things happen in nature as they're supposed to happen. That there's this like cause and effect with nature. But Danny never connects with that. She just she 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 trips on mushrooms and and then has a, a anxiety attack. Um, and that's one of those scenes where the film's kind of established this idea that like, you know, you can't, drugs aren't just going to suddenly make you feel better. You know, if anybody's ever done, you know, mushrooms or whatever, if you're in a bad state before you take drugs, you're going to be a bad state while you're tripping. That's not, drugs are not, you know, psychiatry definitely has found, you know, a lot of uses for, for, um, uh, for drugs that can, you know, calm or, or, or help dispel um, these kinds of problems, but even things like depression and bipolar disorder, we've discovered, you know, you, sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes the drugs don't help. Um, and, and this is kind of midsummer sort of, sort of stating that fact, um, intentionally or not. Um, she does, however, manage to kind of get away once in the film. And I want to bring that up because I think it's one of the most insidious moments in the film. And I can't really elaborate on it specifically, but I want to bring it up now because it kind of thematically brings to the front this idea of, you know, Danny kind of momentarily finding peace, I guess. She's in the dancing competition uh, and she smiles. It's the first time really that we've seen a full on authentic smile from her. She's, you know, in this competition, she's dancing and she, she finally finds, you know, um, she transcends. Um, and that's, you know, that's probably the happiest moment for her in the whole film. Uh, which again, it, once we get to my basic theory about the Harga and what's really going on, it's actually very insidious. Um, 
but what happens after that, um, you know, she, she manages to kind of find this moment of, of peace. And then it's kind of like, it all comes back crashing back. It's, it's like, she's, she didn't really escape. She was just, you know, it was like she'd left gravity for a minute and then now she's coming back to earth even faster than before because then she, she stumbles onto, um, Christian copulating with one of the Harga. But what's interesting is I don't, that's not really a surprise to Danny. Like as soon as she hears that strange distorted chant, like sounds coming from the sex temple, she knew and she ignores the, the Harga urging her to stay away, even though they really did nothing to stop her. I think something deep within her, that perpetually like sad, dark thing was telling her heart what was happening and she couldn't ignore it. It's because it's a part of her. It's controlling her. And after she witnesses Christian's, you know, betrayal, when the whole miserable reality just comes crashing back, it returns as this horrible monster that just paralyzes her with, with pain and grief. And the Harga around her just start to collectively mirror her pain and her, uh, her agony. And that's kind of this, this analogy to what we do when people are suffering is we want to kind of mirror that. We always say, Oh, you know, I've dealt with this before. I've, when we see someone suffering, our instinct is to empathize, to say, I know how it feels because then we can say it will get better or your feelings are valid and you're not alone, but it doesn't work that way. You don't really know how it feels. No one really does. At least of all the Harga. Uh, the Harga only had one way to bring respite to Danny. And it was, again, the most insidious act of them all. So, you know, we'll get back to that. Um, and when we see her again after her, her breakdown, she's just encased in this ceremonial cocoon of flowers atop a daze, occupying the most honored position the Harga could offer, essentially being worshipped by them now. And despite all that, her frown is just excruciating. It's, it's difficult to look at. Her frown is just so visceral. And it's at this point, I think she's at her like aphelion. Like she is, she is most strongly realizing the nightmare that she's trapped in. Um, and they are, they offer her a choice to sacrifice Christian. Uh, this is like their way of saying like, Oh, you know, it's, it's awful. This is horrible. This thing he's done to you. We can fix it. We can make it better. But we're never shown whether she makes this decision in the film. There's an ambiguity there. We, we were kind of asked to empathize with Danny. Like, what would you do? What would you have chosen? And a lot of people in, empathize deeply with her and, and they kind of feel like her, you know, decision would have been to, to kill Christian because of what he did. Um, but there's an interpretation of the film's final frame I disagree with, again, pretty completely. And when that's uh, her frown transforms into a smile and they, people say this is her breaking point. The last vestiges of her sanity have finally slipped in this, this fire, Christian's death, both have made her happy. Many think that maybe she's just happy because of Christian's death. Um, I don't think that's why she's smiling. I think she's just smiling because she, she is smiling the winter of her emotions have given away to summer. She's smiling because nature created that moment to let her smile. She's smiling for no reason, just like how her family died for no reason, just like how the universe exists for no reason. Midsommar is in fact existential horror. There are explorations of this throughout the film, but it's that moment when she's on mushrooms and she sees the tree and Pele is telling her that nature is a mechanism there's no imperfection in nature. There's no imperfection anywhere. There is no food. There is no water. Life is not a cycle because a cycle implies movement. Movement implies an end in the beginning. But our reality is a holographic projection and human beings can scarcely grasp that it's an illusion, much less 
the underpinning quantum mechanics that define the system that creates the illusion of time and space that we think of as the anchor we use to escape being swept away from our minds. And Danny was always the May Queen. Pell, the, the Harga who found her, he knew it. Like he, Harga had been searching for her the whole time. Pell found her. It was prophecy. The film talks about the prophecy. It makes the prophecy a central part of the Harga story. Everything they did was already set in motion at, at the very first second of the film and the very first second of existence. The Maypole dance was a lie. It was literally a performance. There was no competition. Danny didn't win anything with her dancing. Although for a moment, her mind did disappear into it and her consciousness gave way to the nature of her body and she kind of became one with irrationality. She was free from the paradox of being human, free from the torment of the knowledge that her fate is inescapable, colliding perpetually with the instinct to deny that fate. But the Harga knew that fate. They had a prophecy. There were no coincidences. It all happened as it should, the beginning, the end, all of it. That's the worst of all. Even though Danny, now finally one with the Harga, knew that it all already happened, that it was going to happen again and again, every 90 years, just like they said, she was smiling just because. It follows that it is not unreasonable to assume that in the mechanics of numbers, the reproduction of the patterns of protests, the piece of lunar dust, there exists a secret plot to kill you. <laughs>